It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, There is very compelling evidence that we uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into the Garden of Doom, and this week we have a very special guest with us. It's Sebastian Major. He's from the podcast, his own podcast, called Our Fake History. Don't be fooled by the name. It is very much a history podcast, though he does spend some time debunking uh, the fake parts of history. He'll do a better job of describing a show than I ever could, but I have to be, I'm not just saying this because he's my guest. It is my favorite history podcast. I know everybody says Dan Carlin. I subscribe to both his podcasts. I like Dan Carlin, too. But 
25 hours or 30 hours on a subject over two years is, is, a, is a bit much for me. Um, and I, I like mine more episodical and condensed. But, you know, just but I'm sure even to be mentioned in, in the same breath with Dan Carlin is, is something I'd love to be one day. So anyway, I thank Sebastian Major for coming in, uh, to the show. It's very kind of him, very gracious. And we're going to have a little bit of fun today. But how are you doing today, uh, Sebastian? I'm good. Thanks for the really nice introduction, Jeff. That was very sweet. And it is an honor to be mentioned in the same breath as Dan Carlin. Obviously, I'm a fan, right? I don't think anyone who starts a history podcast uh, is not a fan of of what Dan Carlin is doing. So uh, I am honored to be in that company, and I'm happy to be with you here today. Well, thank you. And you may not know this, or maybe you do, but you actually forged uh, some of the other guests for my show, both past and hopefully in the future. But uh, I heard, uh, I learned about the history of Africa from your show, and Andy was on our show, and then we kept in touch a little bit. And also a show called Unwritten History, and through that I sort of stumbled upon a couple of other shows, uh, the Asian Tapestries and uh, Myths and Fables of Africa. So uh, I've been talking to those folks a lot of them seem to be located in South Africa, which apparently is going through really? like terrible times right now. Um, so I, I, I am ashamed to say I haven't taken time to look into it because, well, we've had sort of our own terrible times uh, up here. It's tough all over, man. Yeah, that went, it doesn't seem like it compares to what's going on there. Um, but uh, one of them put out a podcast recently. Actually, both two of them put out podcasts recently, and I, I hit them up. So they'll get back to me when they're ready. But so you you forged some little cyber friendships, um, and so I, I built my way up to you. I built up my confidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we could finally hook it up. I know we uh, we had a couple false starts at making this happen, but I'm happy to be here now. Thank you. Why don't you tell the folks a little bit about your show? You can plug it. You can give your own description of the show rather than my sort of a clumsy attempt. Sure. Uh, yeah. So Our Fake History is a podcast about myths that somehow got woven into the fabric of history. So there's all these stories that a lot of times people repeat like they are historical facts. Um, some of the more fun ones are things like, you know, Napoleon shot off the nose of the Sphinx. You know, people will, will tell you that all the time. Like, you want to know why the Sphinx has no nose? It's because Napoleon used it for target practice. Uh, that's not true, right? That was a legend that got cooked up about 100 years after the time of Napoleon um, and uh, is in no way based in historical fact. So on my show, I'll look at a story like that um, and I will pick apart the fact from the fiction. I will tell you the tale, uh, and then I'll do a little bit of historical detective work. And then sometimes I'll go at it from the opposite direction. I'll look at something that people think is 100% legend, like um, King Arthur or the Trojan War uh, or the stories around the Ark of the Covenant, and I'll, uh, I'll evaluate them and see if there's any kernel of historical truth um, in the mix there. So the, sto the, the show is part storytelling and part historical detective work. That's a, that's a great description. Thank you for that. And I think that anybody who's stuck around with Garden of Doom for any significant portion of our year plus of being in existence 
Uh, and it's just been, even though there's more than 52 episodes, there's, there were bonus episodes and there were certain weeks where I had to drop two episodes, um, for various reasons. Um, I guess over success in booking and, and things of that nature. Um, but, uh, I think that you would enjoy garden, um, uh, fake history as well, especially those of you who are interested in, in the actual hard history, as well as the fun part we we tend to stray more into the fun and and the myth and and you know we we, we give that stuff seriousness as well and, and certainly our guests too and we want to give them the respect that they deserve but uh if you want more of the sort of the academic more you know uh history um in in a fun condensed way uh not really condensed is the wrong word but a very manageable way of, it's it's very well presented uh thanks it, yeah. that's really nice of you to say in other words, if you, if you had Sebastian as your professor in college, you know, you wouldn't have been sleeping through the courses. Um, <laughs> you probably would have read the materials and not just read the summary at the back end of the books like like I did in Social 101 and other classes. Um, I'm in my 50s now. I don't need to pretend I read everything. Uh, it's beyond that. So we picked, like I gave him a long list of, of sort of things and we winnowed it down to some things that he felt comfortable speaking on that, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly a, a tug of war negotiation going on. And of course, one of the things that we, that we talked about or settled on, not settled on, this is, this is awesome, is Templars. I mean, Templars is something that I think everybody heard the word, but I'm not sure anybody really paid that much attention until Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code exploded upon the world. And apparently besides the Bible, or maybe including the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Um, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, the characters were made of cardboard, but who cares? The, 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 the story was a rich tapestry of wonderfulness. Um, and the temple, and, and after that, there were books and movies and this, you couldn't get away from the Templars. They were everywhere. You know, we're, we're, everyone had an opinion on the Templars after Da Vinci Code, for sure. Absolutely, and and they 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 still try to do things. They they do drama shows on the History Channel, and then you know you know everybody who was in the Crusades was a Templar. No, they weren't. So I'm gonna defer to Sebastian and let him talk about the Templars, and I'm sure I'll, I'll do my usual bit of interjecting or asking questions some dopey some not so dopey but as my audience knows i'm not afraid to ask the dopey questions because i figure that you out there probably have dopey questions as well uh which means they're not really that dopey so <laughs> and dopey is a character from land of the lost which is nothing we cover on the show um so the templars who and what were the templars so the the Order of the Knights Templar were created after the First Crusade. Um, so the First Crusade is also something I've looked at on my podcast. I did a trilogy on the First Crusade. And it is one of the most weird and surprising events in human history when you, when you break it down. A lot of times we just sort of characterize it as like the Christians wanted to retake the Holy Land and so they marched in and bravely did so. Uh, but that is a gross, gross oversimplification of a very weird, uh, odd event characterized by double crosses and backstabbing and weird fanaticism and strange bouts of anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, but I'm, you know, obviously we could talk a lot about just the first crusade, 
But eventually it culminates in a Christian army managing to capture Jerusalem and large swaths of, um, you know, what would today be Syria, uh, Palestine, that whole part of the world. And so originally, when those crusaders went over there, they were supposed to give that territory back to the Byzantine Empire. It had one time been Byzantine, or essentially Roman territory, but with the Muslim conquests uh, a few hundred years earlier than the Crusade, they, that, that territory had long been in the hands of various um, Muslim powers. And so the Crusaders went there and originally was like, yes, we will restore it and give it back to the emperor in Constantinople. But after a lot of the bad blood between the Crusaders and the Byzantine emperor, the Crusaders were like, no, we're keeping this for ourselves. <laughs> We're going to create our own new countries in this part of the world, and these became known as the Crusader states. The largest of the Crusader states was the uh, was known as the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and it wasn't just the city of Jerusalem. It would have been, um, you know, what is today sort of Israel and Palestine, uh, parts of Syria, parts of Jordan. It was a pretty big territory, and so it was there that the Knights Templar are created. So after the First Crusade, obviously the Muslims that are still there are now very hostile to these Christian invaders. And uh, so once Jerusalem is captured for the Christian, you actually get this new flood of pilgrims, people coming to the Holy Land because they want to go to Jerusalem now because they're like, oh, it's back in Christian hands. It'll be, it'll be safer to go there. Now, ironically, it was probably safer for those pilgrims to go when it was in Muslim hands because there was less animosity towards Christians. So a bit of an irony there. But what happens in that period after the First Crusade is a bunch of pilgrims start showing up and um, Muslim, mostly bandits, they're not really working for any particular power. They're like kind of these rogue bands of like men on horseback. Uh, we're attacking pilgrims, like groups, big groups of pilgrims. They would attack them, they'd rob them, they'd often kill them. There was one particularly... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You know, a heinous event where a group of about 300 German pilgrims turn up in Jerusalem. They, they get there. They get there without much incident. They see uh, something known as the Miracle of the Flame at the... Uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is this a miracle that happens every uh, Easter Saturday, still happens, oh. uh, where just a flame emanates from what is thought to be like the tomb of Christ. Um, and they are so overwhelmed with like 
you know, spiritual joy that they're like, we will now march to the river Jordan and we will bathe in the river Jordan like Christ himself did. Uh, so they go on this big march out of Jerusalem, bad idea, because as soon as you're outside of the walls of the city, like you're kind of unprotected right. and they get, they get uh, attacked by a band of, uh, of bandits and 300 of them are killed. This is like a huge scandal. The king of Jerusalem at the time, a guy named Baldwin, uh, tries to round up like a posse of knights to go get these bandits. Can't find them. They just like disappear back into their hideouts. Again, it's not like some lord or duke or some power ordered them to do it. They were just just like a gang. Hmm. <laughs> like basically like let's rob and kill these people. So after that point, um, a uh, a knight. Uh, goes to the king of Jerusalem and he's like, I want to start a new religious order. And this religious order's job is just going to be to protect pilgrims in the Holy Land. And so the king goes, all right, very well, found the order. And this becomes the poor fellow Knights of the Temple or the Knights Templar for short. Um, and they were quartered in a place that when the Muslims owned Jerusalem. It was known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's still there today. It's on the Temple Mount <clears throat> in Jerusalem. And uh, they assumed, wrongly, that it was the old Temple of Solomon. It was not. It was another building that had been built by Muslims, but they assumed that it was the Temple of Solomon, and so they called themselves the Knights of the Temple. That was their headquarters. And their job was to just protect pilgrims that were coming through. So the, they were they were actually a very novel idea at the time because they were going to be both monks and knights. And that, was, that wasn't really done before in the medieval era. The idea was that monks were supposed to be nonviolent, right? They were supposed sure. to live like Christ, right? So they weren't really supposed to be warrior monks. Well, except in um, kung fu movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the Shaolin monks also had their own interesting justifications for that, right? Because they they were supposed to be Buddhists, <laughs> and uh, but you know they both the Knights Templar and the Shaolin monks co cook up interesting theological justifications for why they can be violent monks, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so this this is the creation of this brand new. Uh, theological order that is both sort of a knightly order and a monastic order. They, they, they catch on, they become incredibly popular. Uh, the Pope says that they don't have to report to any worldly king. They put report directly to the Pope. So they are not subject to any laws or any taxes in any country in Europe or anywhere that cares about what the Pope said. Right, and, um, and they're in uh, the Jerusalem area, and the Pope is in Italy or France, I guess, depending on what time it was. Uh, and it's not exactly like you can pick up your cell phone then. It's, uh, messages took a long time to get back and forth. That's right. That's right. So anyway, eventually, I know I'm giving you a long answer here. That's no, good. But eventually the Templars become this, uh, this very influential and powerful uh, order of not just monks, but also warriors in the Holy Land. And then they kind of become like shock troops for the later Crusades, the second and third, especially the third crusade. Um, basically when these other Kings of Europe would turn up in, in, uh, the Holy Land, you know, trying to 
you know, reconquer things that had been taken back by various Muslim powers. The Templars would be there providing like this like well-trained group of shock troops uh, that would continue fighting. The special forces. What's that, sir? It's the special forces that were embedded in, and I guess your Marines that hit the beach in one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not a bad way to think of it. Um, and uh, But they also became incredibly wealthy uh, at the time because they, they also started um, essentially doing banking. So if you wanted to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, uh, you let's say you were back in France and you were like, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to go to the Holy Land and I'm going to, you know, help with these crusades or, you know, after the formation of the crusader states, Muslim powers were constantly sort of winning them back. And so from then on, it's always this like, we need to reconquer the Holy Land. We've got to do it again. And so they were always in need of new people to come to the Holy Land and try and like fight to get back the territory that they originally got in the first crusade. And so... By this point, the Templars, so after like about 100 years of the Templar is existing, they become incredibly popular, not just in the Holy Land, but across Europe. And so there are Templar houses or temples um, all over Europe. They were especially big in France, but they were also big in Italy and Spain and Germany. But they really had a presence in France. And a lot of the original Crusaders were were from France as well, though they were the Franks, right? Yeah, wasn't it like Joffrey de Fournay or some, something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so if you were going to go to the Holy Land, and let's say you were worried about either a family member stealing your stuff or just random ba- bandits stealing your stuff, or maybe even the king or a local lord confiscating your stuff, which happened all the time, uh, you could go to the Templars and you essentially would make a will with them. And they would say, okay, here's who's supposed to get your stuff. And if someone tried to like wrongfully take your stuff, the Templars would show up and like would protect your property. Uh, and you would just like give them your valuables as well, right? It's like, I don't want anyone stealing like this like treasure chest I have. Take it, the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar would say, no problem. They would also do, they also gave like a medieval form of traveler's checks which was kind of brilliant at the time. They would go like, okay, let's say you're like, all right, I, I don't want to have money on the road or like back then it just would have been like, you know, physical objects of wealth, like jewels or gold coins and stuff like that. Cause it was a dangerous road to get to the Holy land. So you would go to a Templar house. You would drop off any valuables the the, the Knights would tell you how much it was worth. They would then write you a certificate that said what that was worth you would keep that certificate with you. You would get, let's say you got to Jerusalem, you'd go to the Templar house there, you'd give your certificate, and then they would, get, you could withdraw that amount of money in Jerusalem. So just kind of like a, a bank works now. Literally, like Wells Fargo, I mean, down to the, you know, the, the arm protection for your stagecoach caravan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, those are letters of credit, basically. They, and, and I'm sure, you know, they took a, piece off of each letter of credit on each end of the transaction. And, yeah, I, yeah, it, and I suppose if somebody didn't make it to the other side, maybe things got kept. Yeah, I mean, there were a whole, yeah, sometimes things got kept, but you, you would create a will, so they'd say, like, if I don't get there, like, make sure, like, my son gets, my wife gets, like, whoever you're giving your stuff to, they had the will. And, and if they, if he, and it was also up to the Templars usually to tell your family sure. that you had died. So a Templar would, like, go to your family home 
and would like be like, they died, but we have to go read the will. We've got to come to the Templar house. So but they, but they end up controlling a lot of wealth. And because they have all this liquid wealth, they become the people to go to if you are a king or a lord and you need money. So this is sort of key to the whole uh, Templar myth. Like, so this is the history that kind of births the myth because they are these like money lending warrior knights. <laughs> and, and money lending was not allowed by the church at the time. That's true. Yeah, exactly. It was a sin uh, called, called usury. But the Templars got around it. The Templars were allowed to, to issue, uh, to issue loans, uh, because of their sort of special privilege as a religious order. Yeah. They, they got an exemption. So they, they, like the church, I guess they could charge a tithe or whatever it was. Yeah. Now the legend is they started with just nine of them. How is that possible that, that these nine guys, if that's even true, um, you know, we're able to fend off, you know, these roving bandits uh, protecting these caravans or I don't know what you call a, a group of pilgrims other than a pilgrimage. Um, yeah. uh, but I guess caravans as good as any. Um, sure. So is there any truth that there was ever just nine of them or was there nine, but they each had four squires and they each had three apprentices and the nine was really 48 or, you know. Uh, I mean, based on the, the, the stuff that I've read, it's it's not out of the question that there were an original nine, right? So there's the the founder of the order. Hold on, let me just pull up his name here. Um, oh yeah, Hugh de Payen. Hugh de Payen was the the founder of the Templar order, and um, and so they were sort of like him and his sort of like close group of of men who were already knights. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the original idea for the, the the poor fellow knights of the temple is that they were kind of taking vows of poverty, oddly enough. Considering mm-hmm. they became so rich, it's very ironic. But it's like, no, we are just, we are, we are very humble. We're not like the flashy knights of Europe. We are, like, we're more like monks. And, in fact, there's an early um, uh, inscription um about the like poor fellow knights where it shows two of the knights sharing one horse. Uh, and so the idea is that at the beginning they were kind of an impoverished order. They weren't sort of this big flashy band of people. Uh, it, it, they only really catch on after uh, there's a bunch of people start writing nice things about them. So they kind of are a scrappy little band to begin with. Uh, and yeah, nine is the number that gets thrown around and there's not really much reason to doubt it. It's more just like, yeah, they probably weren't a super effective force at the beginning. It was just nine guys that, that would go out and be like, Hey, like I'm a, I'm a train. I've had some training with weapons and riding a horse. I can like maybe help you out. Well, now um, I've, I've got to inject some garden of doomness into this because nine in a lot of religions and mythologies is sort of like a magic number. You know, uh, there, there, there's like the the nine major deities in you know most of the mythologies, and there's the the nine worlds of Asgard. There's a, uh, you know even in Lord of the Rings they had the you had the nine ring rates and then the one that ruled sure. them all. So you had the nine knights and. God, you know, ruled them all. So it's sort of a very convenient number in Christendom, which sort of obviously built upon, you know, sort of everything else that came before it. Uh, interesting. I hadn't known that. So that's interesting. I had I had never evaluated it from that perspective. Like 
it, does this number nine come down to us because of any type of sig- numerological significance? This, this is what I do. I, I draw connections <laughs> where they're just as likely are none. <laughs> but they're fun to think about. So, all right. So, so we, we, we don't know, but as, as, as far as history knows, there very well could have been nine, but they grew quickly because they were successful in their efforts at security and, and then became successful in their efforts of, I guess, delivering bad news in a nice way and making sure people got their estates. And I guess the majority of their people made it safely back and forth from destinations. So they were, uh, you know, like a, a safe, a safe safari tour or something. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and then eventually they, there's a lot of prestige associated with the order. So as time goes on, you know, a few hundred years of Templar activity, um, you know, they get the, the Pope, um, you know, start... Well, the, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Some of the popes, not all of the popes, but some of the popes really start to favor the order. Others do not, famously, and that's... I don't know if we'll have time to get into all the ins and outs of every pope that liked or did not like the Templars... Um, but there, there's also some early, uh, you can, church you can always book yourself for future shows, Sebastian. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, but there's also some like early church philosophers who wrote, um, really glowing treaties about the Knights Templar, uh, and would like praise the Knights Templar at church councils. And so, um, then it, they, there were people that were actively sort of joining the ranks um, and in many ways, it kind of gave a, um, it formalized the idea of the warrior pilgrim. So like, at the first crusade, that kind of created the idea of like, I'm going to be this holy warrior. I'm going to be going to the Holy Land and I'm, I'm there as a pilgrim, but I'm also there to fight. And the Knight Templar took that and was like, okay, no, now you're actually a monk. It's like a step up from being a pilgrim. You're a part of a, a monastic brotherhood. You're going to take these vows, a vow of chastity, a vow of obedience, um, but then you're also going to be a warrior. So it, it finally sort of formalized this uh, idea that got birthed uh, in that early in medieval period that sort of uh, launched the First Crusade. Very cool. Um, so the Templars, they are connected or rumored to be connected with everything from the Masons to the Holy Grail, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Treasure of Solomon, uh, you, you know, to, you know, even a little bit north of where you are, that they made their way from France to, to Scotland and then from Scotland to Halifax or, or someplace. And, 
you know, and, and everywhere in between. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you want to tackle of, of these things. You know, but before we even start there, while you gather your thoughts, sure. it's funny you said that the Crusades are, are a wild thing because they, they really are. I mean, until probably 10 years ago, I didn't know there was something called the Merovingian Crusades. I didn't know that there was a crusade for in basically northern France against southern France against, well, at least my understanding of it, it were like largely Cathars who were sort of Templar sympathizers or maybe the, the remnants of the Templars. And then last week I had on uh, Chris, who's the host of the Eastern Border, who told me there was a Teutonic uh, crusade into, he's from Latvia. So, uh, you know, I don't yeah, know if it was called know, Latvia Chris. then. So, okay, yeah, no, no, he's terrific. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a fun show. Um, so, you know, the, you know uh, Europeans have always been good at killing Europeans too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, at this point, you probably collect and decide which order you want to sort of tackle Templar mythos. So I think all of the Templar mythos can really be traced to the early 1700s, a few hundred years after their dissolution. Um, and it really, really all has to do with uh, the rise of Freemasonry in in Europe. So... I mean, there's a whole long tale about the dissolution of the Templars. They kind of come to a very sort of strange end, uh, and uh, you know, in the 1300s, and um, I think I think it's the 1300s. I hope I have that date right. But yes, I, I'm pretty sure the 1300s. Uh, and then for 400 years, you Wait, know, no one's real. Before you leave the 1300, wasn't it something? Wasn't it a Friday the 13th? Isn't that where yeah. Friday the 13th so, comes from? Okay, so yes, it, it was a Friday the 13th. But okay, let's talk about this Friday the 13th thing. Okay. Because this is actually a great example of a historical myth. Yes. So <laughs> I, I was doing my little so, victory dance there, yeah, audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the the Knights Templar eventually run afoul of the King of France, a guy named Philip the Fair. Um, Philip the Fair owes huge amounts of money to the Templars. In fact, for generations, the French kings had owed just huge amounts of money to the Templars, to the point where, like, the finances of the French throne were so intermingled with the, uh, with the Knights Templar that many people joked that the Templar... Uh, temple in Paris was just called the Royal Treasury. Uh, it was just, so, but Philip the Fair was a particularly, he was a colorful French king. He's an interesting figure, but he went hard after anyone that he perceived as an enemy and especially anyone he owed money to. Uh, and there are, there were multiple people or groups, not just people, groups that he accused of witchcraft, heresy, and cooked up slanders about, so he didn't have to pay them money. Um, and the Templars were one of those. And, and a lot of the, even the medieval chroniclers at the time were like, oh yeah, the Templars got set up by a very greedy French king. But wouldn't so, the Pope have had to have been in cahoots with the king for that to have worked? Yes, and so the Pope... The Pope at the time doesn't go to bat for the Templars because the, the Pope at the time. Now, again, there's a conspiracy theory that we can get into, but okay, let me, I, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let me just tell you the tale okay. here. So 
basically on uh okay let me just pull up the date so i know it exactly i have it in my notes here uh i just want to make sure i get it right because it is an uh it is a friday the 13th but i just want to make sure it's like 1304 or something like that oh yes so 1307 right exactly so friday the october 13th 1307 i'll put you back in my big screen here oops all right oh one second there we go all right so october the 13th uh friday october friday the 13th 1307 there it is there it is so um on that day there is this rash of arrests across france of all of these templar knights hundreds of templar knights taken in and questioned on that day now the myth is that day they were rounded up they were tortured and they were burnt at the stake by the hundreds this isn't accurate many they were they were rounded up and they were questioned now in the questioning they were basically they were given all these a a, a whole sort of litany of questions many of them were like hey do you templars have freaky rituals uh they accuse them of being gay they're like are you getting are are your rituals essentially forms of homosexual sex uh they accuse them of um of spitting on the cross this is a big one they're like you have this ritual where you all spit on the cross and you disavow christ and then the other one is that and like oh yeah and then you also have this ritual where you bring out this weird fake head and you all worship this bearded head <laughs> right so idolatry and so all of the templar every single person to a man denies it denies it denies it until they are either threatened with torture or they are tortured but interestingly all of them when they are tortured or they're threatened with torture they go okay okay i did the gay stuff okay okay i spit on the cross but but when it comes to idolatry they all go no never never idolatry wouldn't do it now a lot of scholars go like this is interesting because they all admit on pain of pain um, they, they all admit to the very forgivable sins so like sexual impropriety and blasphemy are are sins you can be forgiven for right but idolatry is a big deal idolatry and a heresy that's a burnable offense right and so the templars go like look if if i'm going to be like tortured fine i'll admit to the little stuff but i'm not going to admit to the big stuff and so none of them are really burnt at the time right in fact no one is burnt. there's like oh there's this big arrest but then on that october the october the 13th date friday the 13th basically everyone's released no one is burnt on that day five years later basically the templars many of the templars are realizing that like well what happens is that in spain and in italy and in parts of germany they're like oh we need to investigate the templars and the local authorities investigate the templars and they're like none of this bad stuff is going on in the templar houses this is just clearly cooked up by the king of france none of nothing we we have found no evidence of any wrongdoing and so these french templars are like well see and so now a bunch of them recant their confessions 
and they go, look, we're, we're, we recant our confessions. Clearly we were doing nothing wrong. I only said that because you said you were going to torture me. I recant my confession. And that's when the king gets them. Because the worst thing you can be is a relapsed heretic. And so five to seven years after that original Friday the 13th date, that's when a relatively small group, less than 100 um, Templars are burnt at the stake because they were relapsed heretics, because they recanted their earlier confession, because other countries, other authorities had basically exonerated them. Hmm. But one of the people that was burnt was the uh, head of the order, um, Jacques de Molay. And so he has sort of gone down to sort of a legendary figure in Templar lore because there's a story that he cursed both the king of France and the pope who did not stand up for him. Uh, and the pope now just being like, look, there's this scandal around the Templars. I don't like this stink of scandal. These guys have gotten way too powerful anyway. The pope dissolves the order. And so Jacques de Molay is like, I'm, I'm, I put a curse on both of you. That didn't happen either. Another historical myth, uh, it comes from a chronicle, an Italian chronicle, and it's actually the curse is put in the mouth of a, a very uh, obscure Italian Templar, uh, and there's lots of reason to believe that even that was just a little dramatic flourish made up by the chronicler. All right, it's a nice story. So there you go. There's there's two historical myths busted for the price of one. There, right. You, you you always want the the witch burned at the stake to curse everybody, and there's a yeah you know, curse for 230 years go afterwards or whatever. Um, so out of this, uh, you know, I guess the legends are that they had enough lead time to escape. I guess if you believe it was on Friday the 13th, uh, you know that they, they had the wherewithal. If it's five to seven years, that makes it easier to <laughs> to pack yeah. up stuff and and ship it away. And, uh, you know, I guess one of the legends is that they had you know, the, the treasure of Solomon or certain treasures of Solomon, namely the Holy Grail, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and took it afar. But you were saying that the, the largely after the 1300s, this, this legend sort of, you know, went to the dust piles and then got resuscitated in the 1700s. So in the 1700s, what about the Grand Masons? Uh, made this interest or this legend of the Templars come back? Or were they just like a, it was like far enough in history, but well enough known that you could say they're the ones who did it. I, I mean, sort of like, I, I guess, I, I, I can't even think of who, who you would say. I'm going to say the, 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 the brigands, the, the conquistadors, like we would say. It was the conquistadors who did it. Uh, you know. So. Well, so, okay. So back in the 1300s, you know, no one really thought that the Templars had any mystical or magical abilities beyond just being monks, right? They didn't sort of ascribe to them any sort of secret knowledge or anything like that. Or there is no evidence that any, or writing from the time that anyone believed that. But in the 1700s, you get the rise of these Masonic lodges, and they eventually become incredibly popular across Europe, but they really get their start in England. Um, now, people that have written about masonry have talked about how these essentially men's clubs, which is what they were, um, were partially about reviving medieval ritual. So in the 1700s, you know, we're sort of at the, 
the beginning of what people call the Enlightenment. We can have a whole debate about whether or not the Enlightenment was really the Enlightenment. Uh, but let's let's accept it for now and be like it's the the this kind of the beginning of the modern era. Um, and a lot of the sort of ritual that had been part of life a few centuries earlier had sort of faded away. And uh, many people that study this stuff go like these Masonic lodges really bring a lot of it back. Uh, and so, uh, so part of part of you know their fascination with these sort of uh, the Templars was like let's bring back some of this uh, medieval style ritual. Now the Masons themselves just cooked up a complete fake history for their club. Uh, it was just a boys' club. And again, I really do not go in for any uh, you know conspiratorial belief about Masons beyond that. Eventually, like, did high-ranking Masons help out like other Mason Masonic brothers down the road? Oh yeah, that was like what they did. That's how the the, the club was supposed to work. Well, it's, but, a, it's a union hall. I mean, that, uh, yeah. You know. Very much so, very much so. Um, but what was interesting is that they cooked up this elaborate mythology for themselves, and it was very much just a complete made it up out of whole cloth. So the early Masonic lodges were uh, mostly middle class, right? These were like, these were not aristocrats. Eventually, aristocratic people would join up, but originally it was people that were not, didn't have titles or nobility, but were sort of this emerging wealthy bourgeois class, right? Uh, these were wealthy shopkeepers, lawyers, um, you know, like the kind of moneyed middle class of originally England and then other parts of Europe. And so they were like, well, okay, we come out of this tradition of uh, trade guilds that had existed in medieval times, that we were originally the, you know, guild of masons, and, uh, and now we are just this cool boys club. Uh, now, there's no, there is no hard historical evidence at all connecting the Masonic Lodges of the 1700s to any type of medieval Masonic guild. They will tell you that that's what they were, but there's no evidence that that is what they were. But that's their mythology. So from there they go, in, and these guilds of Masons actually had passed on secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge goes back millennia, millennia. So we were, those Masons in medieval times, those Masonic guilds, they actually were, had knowledge that had been passed to them by the Masons who had built the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem and the Masons that built the pyramids in sure. Egypt. Osiris, right? the first Mason, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All the, like, basically any cool ancient structure that was built by our Masonic brothers. And so, <clears throat> how do the Templars get roped into this? Well, eventually, the Masonic lore grows, and they go, yeah, so you know that the, the Knights Templar, their headquarters was the Temple of Solomon. And they, and there's, a, there's like a French Mason in the 1700s that, straight up invents a story. He's like, yeah, Hugh de Payen, when he was renovating the Temple of Solomon, which you'll remember was not actually the real Temple of Solomon. Right. It was the Alaska Mosque. But when he was renovating it, <clears throat> they broke down a wall and they found this like secret treasure chest. <clears throat> and in it, it had all of these incredible like secrets from the past and these amazing treasures. 
and the Templars became the keeper of these treasures. And in fact, they were they were the the original Freemasons, right? That even though, of course, there's the Masonic guilds, there were also the Templars, and the Templars were because they had were headquartered at the Temple of Solomon, had also had this Masonic lore and Masonic treasure. So then Masons start this weird trade in fake Templar stuff. Fake Templar medallions, fake Templar swords, um, fake Templar cloaks. They all claimed that they were from, you know, the 1300s or earlier, uh, but they were all very clearly uh, forgeries that were created in the 1700s and beyond, in the 1800s. And so the guys that are really into swords, and I have a feeling that your audience might have some sword sword gal- girls and guys out there. I hope so. Um, yeah. But you can always tell what's a real Templar sword and what's a fake Templar sword because the real Knights Templar, because they were supposed to be the poor fellow knights, had a rule in their order that you could not decorate your sword. Ah. It had to be the most plain-looking thing it could possibly be. And so these these swords in the 1700s are clearly something that is made by someone that wants to play knight. Right, it's like these jeweled, fancy ass things, and with, of course, Templar crosses on sure. them, and uh, and these were things that were traded between <clears throat> Masonic Lodge brothers. They'd be like, "Oh, I found this medallion, and I give it to you because you're such a super buddy." And it's like, "Oh, well, I have this sword, and I give it to you because <laughs> you are truly a man of great wisdom," and blah blah blah. And this is how they played their games, you know. And one says Excalibur in Latin or something. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of the mysticism wrapped up with the Templars was something that was cooked up by these guys in the 1700s. It's just like a fairy tale that made their club feel cooler. That's been done before. They're not the only ones to do it. All right. So the Templars probably know Holy Grail. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, so, yeah, then you get to like the 80s and you have, you know, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, mm. uh, which is, you know, perhaps the most, that that was the kind of work of pseudo-history that uh, Da Vinci Code was based off yes. of. Um, and then those guys sort of introduce, or maybe not introduce, but reinvigorate the idea of the Priory of Sion, uh, which, you know, is the whole Da Vinci Code mystery, right? That there's this secret group of people who know that the real Holy Grail is actually Jesus's bloodline, these kids that he had with Mary Magdalene and their descendants. And there's this like secret group of people that protect them. And so, uh, you know, they popularized the idea that the Templars were actually also part of the Priory of Sion. And they were out there secretly protecting this bloodline of Christ. And the reason that they got persecuted on Friday the 13th was because they were about to orchestrate a coup uh-huh. that they were going to assassinate Philip the Fair uh, and they were going to install one of Christ's descendants on the throne of France and he would become a pan-European king, the most powerful king in, in Europe and would start you know a new age of glory and hope. Um, but the, the king of France got wise to it and so did the the Pope and they 
they turned on the Templars before they could execute their plot. So Charlemagne the next uh, ne- never could come. Yes, yeah, that's I, right. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, again, it, and there's I think there's not any good historical uh, proof to support that, uh, but that's the that is the conspiracy theory. No Illuminati. So what's that? No Illuminati. Hey, no, no, I got this done. <laughs> okay, that's not too bad. No, no uh, counter warrior monks. There were albinos that would. What do they call when they when they injure themselves? The self flagellation. Self flagellation. Yeah, none of that. All right. Well, that's fine. Um, so uh, and there's there's no truth that they actually stored everything in in a hamlet called Perry Sound. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. That would yeah. be amazing. I really really want that to be true i just yeah. I, i've heard a couple of things i've heard a couple of things <laughs> a, a, a guy who just uh, sends me things anonymously d brown keeps saying things about that <laughs> I, I, i'm not sure who it is uh so okay so i think we did did the templars pretty good justice um one of the other things we're, we're going to move to the uh other side of the uh well, just south or other side of the African continent, depending on where you think we were. But um, we're going to visit Mali now, because at, at one point, Mali, the king of Mali was rumored to be the wealthiest person in the history of history uh, yeah. and made some like giant uh, pilgrimage, I guess, from Mali to, was it to Mecca? Or was Mecca, it? yeah, it was the Hajj. The Hajj, which makes sense, of course. Uh, so uh, instead of me fumbling with it, I, I, I will defer to our expert. Yeah, so yeah, com- completely turning the page here. Well, actually, it does take us to uh, the 1300s uh, yeah. again. So it is sort of around the same time that the Templars were being dissolved. Uh, you have uh, the Kingdom of Mali, which is just south of the Sahara. Uh, to give you a sense geographically, uh, it would have contained what is today the modern state of Mali, but also northern Ghana, uh, northern Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, Guinea. It basically would have extended along the whole length of the Niger River. So it's a huge chunk of West Africa. Right. All of Northwest and, Africa, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... Uh, it, it was an immensely wealthy kingdom, a very urban kingdom, a lot of large cities. Uh, so, you know, if anyone ever tells you that, like, before European contact, uh, sub-Saharan Africa was not an urban place or everyone was, like, living in tiny villages or hunter and gatherers, you know, the empire of Mali completely, completely destroys that perception because they were a... Uh, a very sophisticated urban society um, south of the Sahara in, in Western Africa and immensely wealthy because they had uh, not only access to these huge gold fields, these huge gold mines, uh, they also had access to <clears throat> these huge uh, salt deposits in the Sahara and uh, copper as well. And then also these really important uh, trade routes that they also controlled. So, you know, the Sahara Desert, you know, we also often think of it as this, like, impassable border. But the people of, you know, North and sort of West Africa kind of treated it the way we might think of, like, the Mediterranean Sea, right? Like, yeah, it's a boundary. It's this big, intense sure. thing. But we're crossing it all the time. And if you know the routes, 
it's doable. So there was this actual very brisk trade being done across the desert. And, and like the Mediterranean Sea, like, yeah, you know, sometimes if you did it wrong, you would die. Um, yeah, sure. But but like there were ways to do it. It was not just an impossible, impassable barrier. Was there an um, order of nine knights that would protect the, the or, or my? Uh... <laughs> not that I know of. No, but we can work uh, on that. We can work on that story nine. too. So in the origin story of the kings of Mali, at one point they have to overcome uh, these this group of evil women known as the nine witches of Mali. Uh huh. See? So there you go. So then they are these like desert witches that like you know try to cast a spell on the first king of Mali. If you believe the like you know Malayan Malian um, mythology around their first king. Um, but anyway, so I do. Uh, <laughs> right. On. So uh, we uh, by the time we get to um, the early 1300s, uh, you get this king named Mansa Musa. And Mansa was like their title. Like all the kings were called Mansa. Like Khan and, or Caesar. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and so uh, he presides over, uh, you know, our, uh, he has a reign during uh, Mali's greatest territorial extent, the sort of peak of their power, the peak of their cultural influence. It's really sort of the golden age for this, uh, for this kingdom. <clears throat> and so he goes on this opulent pilgrimage to Mecca. So every Muslim is supposed to go uh, on pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their life. And uh, the king of Mali, the Mansa, he was a Muslim. And so he's like, not only am I going to go, I'm going to go in style. Now, when you, when you, most Muslims, one of the, like many religious, like pretty much all religions, there's this idea of like, one should not be flashy with their wealth. One should be, you know, like charitable and like humble. And that's very much true in Islam. And so he was like, I'm going to go on this very, very flashy, flashy pilgrimage. All of the sources say that he took 60,000 people with him <laughs> on his pilgrimage. So he was like this moving city. Um, and, and hundreds of pounds of gold. Well, there's a big debate around how much gold he took with him. But a lot, a lot, a lot of gold. I'd hate to be the 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 quartermaster or the the people in charge of the logistics for that one. Yeah, well, like there's all of these stories about how he actually moved the gold, right? So someone's like, okay, he had he had 500 camels, and each camel took a hundred pounds of gold. Or it's like he had 500 slaves that like ran ahead of them and each of them carried <laughs> a bar of gold. They carried like a gold staff and like it was... It, Carrying the stuff I can understand. How do you feed the people? Where do you house them? Where they right. where they go yeah. to the bathroom along the way on other people's lands? I mean, you know, I mean that uh, I can understand how you figure out how to carry a bunch of stuff. I mean, it's not easy. But holy moly. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. So one of the stories about this pilgrimage is when he rolls through Egypt, uh, he is just splashing out with his gold, too. He's giving it to beggars on the street. He's, you know, patronizing every shop. He's just flooding gold into, you know, Cairo or whatever city he passes through. Um, the story is that he pumped 
so much gold into the Egyptian economy that he completely devalued all precious metals in the country and sent the <laughs> sent Egypt into a decade-long recession. So he, he was the cause of inflation. And this yeah. from, my, well, I don't know the capital cities, but from Western Africa to uh, Mecca, I mean, that's got to be, what, seven, 8,000 miles? Yeah, yeah, huge, yeah. And no cars or planes, trains, or automobiles. Just just, just camel, man. Wow. <laughs> but it took him, you know, the, the whole thing is that the whole process takes him like a, a year and a bit, right? Sure. It's, like, it's, like, it's like, you know, months and months to get there and months and months to return. So it's like, you know, a, a long journey. Um, now, the kind of historical myth there is that, yes, you know, he was incredibly wealthy um he but there's no consistent consensus across the sources around how much gold he actually took with him the sources vary from he had five tons of gold with him to 180 tons of gold with him so he had went and so i did the math back i was just looking at my notes today back when i recorded the episodes on mansa musa I, I just priced it out with what the price of gold was then, which was 2020, so like last year. And at the so he either had with him something like $58 million in today's dollars, or he had $9.8 billion with him. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, obviously a huge variation there, though, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the money he had with him. Right. That wasn't all the, the wealth of Mali. Right. That was just what he could carry with him um, to, uh, uh, you know, to to Mecca for his so, round trip. Yeah. But here's the thing. All of the modern historians of Egypt, of like that period of Egypt, none of them see the like the visit of Mount Samusa as in any way affecting the Egyptian economy. It's like a pure legend and it turns up in one source in this one Arabic source and normally a pretty trustworthy guy, but it's like, you know, like any medieval source, like sometimes a fun story just gets wrapped in there. Right. And so when, and, and people that have really done like close economic analyses of Egypt of that period are like, oh yeah, no, no, not one guy give, throwing around a lot of gold changed the economy. Uh, so that's definitely a legend. Now the other thing with Mansa Musa is that you know there's a lot of just crap lists on the internet that are like history's 15 richest people, and he usually tops those lists. Sure. And oftentimes you see that on that list that like he had a net worth of 400 billion dollars. And it's like, okay, sure, that's an interesting number, but like that, someone just pulled their that number out of their ass. Mm -hmm. Like there is, there's really no way to properly calculate the wealth that he had because we don't really have a sense of what the purchasing power of gold was then versus what it would be now. And also those, you know, those lists are usually bullshit anyway because they're not going like, you know it should be half the people on the list are kings of Mali and they never are. It's right. just one guy, one king was really rich. And then what, right after him, all the wealth just disappeared or right before him, all the wealth disappeared. Like, and it's not just gold. I mean, if he's the king, it'd be the value of the, the land and the people and the, yeah. the timber and, you know, diamonds or, you know, and, you know, uh, mangoes or whatever grows there. You know, it's all, it's all part and parcel of it. 
And you would think that, uh, you know, in 7,000 miles, he stopped in other places besides just Egypt and would have had to spend a lot of money there, too, and would have crashed the economy of, I don't know, Sudan, Algeria. Yeah, Morocco. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, yeah, Algeria, you know, yeah. every, every place along the way. Yeah, whatever the lands were along the way, whatever they called themselves there, Nubia, yeah. Ethiopia, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it wouldn't just be Egypt. So, yeah, the, the, the lack of historical... Uh, 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 consistency of corroborating sources is is a little bit lacking there. Well, that that that's a, a little bit unfortunate, I suppose. But that was one of the myths I was never very uh, sold on. Um, it's 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 we did not even talk about this all, but everything's in the 1300s. It wasn't. I don't know. Some of these stories about grandiosity in the West was sort of there to counter. Sort of in the 1300s, wasn't everyone sort of afraid of the Mongols coming in from the east? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, just before then, like in the 1200s, that's when uh, Genghis Khan sort of, you know, forges his massive empire across Asia. Uh, and yeah, you know, the Mongols are, you know, a going concern for another few hundred years, right? So do you think that maybe all of these other ones were sort of like, uh, yeah, the Mongols were tough, but we had the richest guys or we had the best knights, you know, we, 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 <laughs> we, we could have stopped them if we wanted to. Oh, yeah, I, Sure. I mean, it's funny. I don't know if you we were talking about Dan Carlin earlier, but I, did you ever listen to Dan Carlin's series on the Mongols? When I first was introduced to Dan Carlin, it was his World War One series. Ah, so just before that, he had done this amazing series. You have to now buy it. It's behind the paywall. Mm. Uh, but it's called Wrath of the Khans. Uh, and <laughs> it's, good it's like a five-part series on the Mongol conquests. And it is so good. It is so good. But he makes the point that a lot of times, you know, people do exactly what you're saying. They're like, oh, well, if, if he had ever really faced off against European knights, it would have been a different story. But no, they did, actually. That's, yeah. it's There actually is a moment when they, they conquered uh, or they raided into Georgia or like not Georgia, United States, but right. like the country of Georgia uh, in Central Europe and or sorry, it's like Central Asia, I should say. Um, and... Uh, well, the and Black Sea, where, where Jason found the fleece. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. And so, you know, the, the Georgians were a Christian people. Uh, and, and George, uh, Georgia for St. George, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, um, and, and there was, you know, a massive, uh, there was a massive battle. Now, now that I'm saying this, I'm like, oh, man, but am, I, am I thinking of Armenia? Am I getting Armenia and Georgia confused? Pretty sure it was the Georgians, but... Georgia's a lot closer physically than, than Armenia yeah. was. Yeah. No, because I, I, it's, it, you're right, and I'll tell you why you're right, because I know that they came to some... After a few beheadings, they, they came to some sort of detente with the Ottomans, and they never would have gotten as far as Armenia. Yeah. Um, yeah, there you go. So, but there was, there was this massive battle where, you know, the, the Mongols again were hugely successful against a force that was, you know, essentially fought like most European armies at the time. They had a hard core of like armored knights, uh, you know, at the, at the center of it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, people that want to go like, oh, could the Mongols have ever really fought a knight? It's like, oh yeah, they did. And yeah. they won. Yeah, well, they were faster. I mean, knights were sort of slow and encumbered by heavy armor and things. Uh, but yeah, I I I, re I remember that. Who what? C 
Khan Il Ilgulgin, he, he wrote a series of books. I mean, they're historical fiction on, on Genghis Khan, but they were pretty good. I read those. Actually, the first one was terrific. This, and then, like most things, they successively get a little less terrific. But sure. uh, but it was but it was fun. Yeah, I, there's also another myth, and maybe you can shed some light on this. And again, I apologize. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. Um, but there was the, one of the myths is that Genghis Khan offered to go win the Crusades for Europe if the Pope would just baptize them and the Pope said, no, you're heathens or something like that. No. Uh, yeah, no, there's a, that's total historical myth. Um, the, uh, so it doesn't uh, sound right. I mean, no, totally. well, part of it, part of it was that there was the, the belief in Prester John, right? So there was this legend in, in Europe that there was this Eastern, Christian kingdom, um, and that the king of this Eastern Christian kingdom was called Prester John, and he was going to sort of swoop in and, you know, help them crush the Muslims in the, in the Holy Land. Um, and there was even this like faked letter from Prester John that circulated, uh, in the medieval, medieval era that was sort of this like fantastic, it was like a work of fantasy. It's like, yeah, my kingdom's amazing. The fountain of youth is here. And <laughs> you walk around the, the riverbanks and you just pick up rubies and diamonds. And there's like cool monsters walking around and we've got griffins that we fly on the backs of. And like, <laughs> it, it was just like this bananas letter. It's right above uh, that mountain. No, 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 not that mountain. I said that mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So there was all this speculation about, like, was there any sort of historical truth or a, a nugget of historical truth to the Prester John myth? Some people think that, you know, it, it grew out of the fact that there was this really tiny Christian kingdom in India that had been founded there, like, by the very, very early Christian missionaries, like, out of the Holy Land. Uh, some people think that, you know, many Europeans thought that Ethiopia was actually the land of Prester John because there were these, obviously, Christian kings in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Um, and then others thought that maybe the Mongols, that Genghis Khan was Prester John. Um, and that may have come out of a misunderstanding about, um, there was sort of religious tolerance within the Mongol society. Uh, so there were like Buddhist Mongols, Muslim Mongols, all, a lot of them worshiped their sort of traditional animistic religion, Tengriism. Um, but there were Christian Mongols. It, it was not, many of them were Nestorian Christians. Uh, so this one like sort of thing that was later dubbed a heresy uh, by the mainstream church. But uh, so there were some Christians in the mix in like the the massive confederacy that was like the the Mongol society was Mongol society. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, to call, the, the thing that like, oh, we'll do it if you baptize us. There was a point where uh, <clears throat> the Pope sent an emissary to the Khan, and it wasn't Genghis, I think he was dead by that point. I think it was his son, uh, Ogadai. And he sent him this really weird letter that still exists, that's still there in the Vatican archives. And in it, like, it's just like, what was the Pope thinking? Like, he be it begins all like, you know, first I'm going to explain, like, how the Holy Trinity works to you. <laughs> like, the most, like, arcane bits of, like, Christian theology it's like, it's almost like, unless you like really, really know like Christian theology, the beginning of it is like incomprehensible. And then by the end of it, it's like, now you need to like submit to my authority, like mm -hmm. I, to my authority, the Pope. And Ogadai writes a letter back. And again, remember, Ogadai would have had to have gotten this through like a series of translators, mm -hmm. right? And then Ogadai 
get, get sends a letter back and it's really short and it's like okay whoever you are um, <laughs> like you say that your god you know can, compels me to bow down before you but he's like i've we've conquered the world like do you think i could have done that if your god didn't want me to i don't think i need to do anything for you goodbye yeah, and that was he's, and he's like actually if you what should really happen is you come here and you bow down to me and and that was basically it um so i mean in terms of like correspondence between the mongols and the pope that's the one that i know about and it's i know about it because it's kind of funny yeah uh, not best friends there that's it's 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 not as good as the one from the movie Patton, which maybe is true where the the germans asked the general to surrender and he sent back a note that said nuts and Pat, and Pat said somebody that articulate uh, deserves to be saved or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's another historical myth or not, but uh, I, rem- I don't know enough about that one, but yeah. there you go. It was in the movie Patton, which is a Yeah, a yeah, no, I, I remember it. I remember it from the movie, but yeah, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Yeah, all right. So I, I didn't think that, that that Mongol one was and baptized was true at all because I, I, I don't see the motivation for the Mongols. They seem to be doing pretty good with their own system. And I, and I was very well aware that they were pretty tolerant of, of religions. Uh, they were a little bit like the, the Romans in that way that they sort of, you know, let, let everyone in, uh, at least during the. Hey, yeah. Day. And like the Khan was all like, hey, like, yeah, pray to whoever you want for me. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, oh, sure. I'll make an offering to your God. And I'll, it was just always tough when they were like, no, like to be like, this is why, you know, some some parts of the Mongol Empire would eventually convert to Islam, but you know the parts of Mongolia, many of them did not, because it was like the idea of like having to have one god and not no others was just like ah, why not have them all? You know? Yeah, why what choose? It's like the Baskin and Robbins approach. All right, yeah. so our last sort of myth is is of course the big one. Like I is and that is flood myths because they're everywhere. Um, now, if you listen to Eric Van Dynigan, as I do, I, I have read a, a couple of his books and I've listened to a couple more of his books. Um, you know, he accurately describes that there's flood myths all over the world. Now, what I never hear from him is actual dates on all of them. So I have no idea if they're, you know, near the same time period or not. Then some of these dates can't be falsified. And, and of course, if the floods are related to the recession of ice ages, it would make sense that the, you know, the glaciers didn't disappear overnight worldwide. So they will be different times. That said enough rank speculation by Jeff. I, I, nobody needs to hear from me. They hear from me every week. We have Sebastian major here. So, so what do you got for me on flood myths? Well, one of the really cool things is that flood myths do seem to be a cross cultural story. Uh, and that is fascinating. Right? Like there's, there's no, it, it's hard not to be sort of amazed by that, that, you know, not only do we have the biblical flood, but, you know, a very similar flood story appears in the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Coming out of Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. but even outside of, you know, the, the, um, the Middle East, the, the Chinese have a flood myth. Uh, you know, that the, in India, there are flood myths, even the first nations people from Ontario, where I'm from, from the Anishinaabe, they have a flood myth. Their creation story is a flood myth. Um, It is something you see in so many cultures around the world. The idea of a destructive flood, the idea of a 
chosen person who has to sort of save what is good in the world and then sort of restart afterwards. Um, it is, uh, it's amazing how it appears across cultures. So the big question is why, why does that happen? So, I mean, you know, there's the, the theories, the theories range from, uh, you know, the, the, the mundane, which is just like, Hey, maybe flood myths exist because floods are just a natural phenomenon that everybody experiences around the world. Uh, and you know, perhaps there was, you know, we do know that around the recession, uh, the end of the ice age, around the time that our first sort of settled societies were really getting going as the glaciers were retreating more rapidly, there would have been big flood events. Um, you know, especially in the middle, in the middle East, you know, there's sometimes, uh, there's at one point there was a whole theory that uh, the deluge of the black sea. So a sudden breaking of, um, uh, sort of a, of a dam that, let uh, you know, huge amounts of water flow and essentially create the Black Sea may have been the formation of some of the flood myths in that region. But that doesn't explain why the Anishinaabe in my part of the world have a flood myth, right? Um, you know, the other, the other uh, way to explain it, I know this is, you know, the favorite of uh, also guys like Graham Hancock, is that there was some sort of catastrophic event that uh, happened near the the la end of the last ice age, perhaps a, a comet impact. Um, and that resulted in a huge period of global flooding. Uh, and that is sort of what's recorded in all of these legends around the world. Um, now I get that theory is like that of all of Graham Hancock's stuff, that is actually the theory that is like the least wacky of all of them. Uh, that's the one that I'm like, yeah, maybe like, it's not so crazy. And like, there is some evidence that there may have been a comet impact at that time. Uh, and so, you know, it's still like hotly debated and like not confirmed and not necessarily entirely accepted by all quarters of the scientific community, but it's not, it's not just like nonsense. It is like a theory that is being debated. Um, but yeah, does that fully explain it? Other people say that maybe, you know, if you want to go for like deeper, like, psychological theories people would say like ah oh, no it's all just a memory of birth man ah. the the flood is just a deep like embedded thing that we all remember somehow deep down being born and the that is the flood um and i don't know if that's true it's just an idea that's out there uh yeah i mean you know what i so there's i don't have a good explanation for for why but i do think that you know uh I think it does sort of speak to um, a common human experience. And so whether that experience was a worldwide flood or was it was just like a series of like regional floods, uh, the idea, the, the force of a flood clearly has like a deep psychological impact on us in the same way that, you know, you see the same like hero story occurring in every culture, right? Uh, just because there's something about that uh, structure that seems sort of, so natural to us and, and comes from a very, very, very early point in our development as a species. Yeah, a lot of so, those heroes are sort of jerks. They're all like, if you ever, I mean, I'm sure you have, but if you ever like <laughs> pay attention to like the Thor stories and the Hercules stories and Gilgamesh and even more recently Beowulf, um, 
they're all sort of jerks. Like they're, they're you're they're sort of noble jerks, but they're 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 sort of Lancelot was sort of a jerk too. I mean, they're, they're all sort of jerks. Which of course just confirms to me that 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 we agree it was aliens and they bred with with humans and we have these super powered sort of you know men of renown that that were sort of super powered jerks that you know whoa you know led led uh, small groups through the flood so uh, we we agree on that no I'm kidding but yeah, they, they, yeah no, we, that's funny but but you know what I think what I think about it's interesting about all those ancient heroes is that unlike modern heroes or I shouldn't say just um, Okay, now I'm now I'm second guessing myself. But those ancient heroes, I think ancient people weren't just supposed to love them unambiguously, right? Like you know the let's just take the Greek heroes, right? Like Hercules actually has a tragic, tragic end. And in fact, most of the Greek heroes have like tragic ends. And I, the the idea was that you were supposed to learn from those from those people, right? You were like, I'm supposed to be impressed by you and supposed to kind of think you're cool, but also I'm supposed to go like, ah, this is, this is what happens when you take, you know, ego too far. This is what happens when you really believe you're invulnerable, or this is what happens when you like, you know, uh, you don't, you know, give proper credence to the gods or you don't, you don't take care of your family well enough, or you don't have your priorities straight. You know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to learn from him, and I guess modern heroes do that too, right? Uh, I was about, I was about to say like, oh, all modern heroes were supposed to just like, but then I caught myself. I'm like, no, that's not actually true. Yeah, like when when we even like look at a character like Batman, you know, I, I love Batman. Uh, who doesn't? But uh, but you know, when you're look when you're looking at Batman, you're supposed to think Batman is cool, right? Uh, but like, there's also this thing when you're you know watching Batman or reading an interesting Batman story where you're like, oh, I don't know if I'd really want to be Batman. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> Seems Batman like his first life. Yeah, you know? he's, he's deeply troubled. I mean, that, that, that was yeah. more like, somebody once described to me uh, in a very simple way the difference between DC and Marvel. And he said that the biggest heroes in DC are gods that want to become men. And in Marvel, they're men who want to become gods. And and while there are yeah. certainly exceptions to that, you know, a lot, a lot of it seems to be true, especially lately. I mean, I left comics way after this happened, but apparently after I left comics, like they all became like immensely superpowered. Like there was like a comic book arms race to like, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> Doctor Strange wasn't just a sorcerer. The Scarlet Witch wasn't just a, a witch. They were all like, you know, they could destroy the cosmos anytime they wanted. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, so what do I know? So his his interpretation was... Uh, more recent than mine. All right. So now we're going to get to something else. And I don't know if this is going to take a long time or not. And it doesn't matter. But since I have a history expert now, in one of the first episodes I did of Garden Doom, back when I had a co-host and we had a guest that day, we did, I proposed who was the most important person in history. And the only rules I had to that is that we, we disqualified legend. So like King, you couldn't do King Arthur uh, and I took out biblical characters in their biblical form. So if you believe that historic Muhammad is the most important person in history, go for it. But if you believe that Muhammad is the prophet, you know, and 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 has some divinity to him, no, same as Jesus or whatever, you know, yeah, Moses, sure. whatnot. Buddha, yeah, exactly. Pick whomever you want. You know, if you you know if you can find that there's a Quetzalcoatl out there, it's a person, fine. But if you think <laughs> it's a flying bird, doesn't count for this game. It can be a different yeah. game, um, but not for this one. So, sure. 
my co-host at the time picked Leonardo da Vinci, which I thought was an interesting choice. The guest picked Benjamin Franklin, which I thought, frankly, was a weird choice. Um, you know, maybe, maybe in another five or 6,000 years, you know, who knows? Um, I picked Alexander the Great. Um, and I picked Alexander the Great because there was the concept of empire before him, but there wasn't really the concept of empire cross continents and sort of like seeding generations of that. And it sort of, it sort of ushered in like the European, the, the Eurocentricism, which has sort of dominated the last, well, 24, 2,500 years. Uh, you know, before Alexander, it was, you know, the, the, the Persians were certainly in the conversation. Uh, the Indians, they were the Aksumites, you know, at points. Uh, you know, you know, I'm not going to talk about the, the Chinese because I'm not really sure. And, and, you know, they seem to be more interested in their part of the world at the time. But without Alexander, I don't see that there would have been a Roman Empire and sort of everything that flowed from that. So I picked Alexander... You know, and, and also, you know, I mean, you, you, they changed the languages. You had Seleucid Greek being, the, the, you know, the language of the royal families of Egypt for years. I mean, Cleopatra famously was like the only Egyptian monarch to learn Egyptian, um, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, interpretations and misinterpretations of the Bible, you know, start with it being old Hebrew to new Hebrew to old Greek to Seleucid Greek. And then you get to the Latin and English. I don't know. I just felt that the, the Alexander was sort of the key to all of that. Not to mention you got a whole bunch of churches and things named after his generals. And I don't know. Sure. So, and then, and of course, I'm not sure that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle would have been that, that famous without Aristotle's favorite student. And without Aristotle's favorite student, student I don't know that we ever, that, that the Atlantis myth would, would ever be so perpetual perpetual ah, that's a, that's i think that's very true i think that's very true that's interesting yeah thank you i like how you always tie it into like the world of uh uh of crypto stuff eh it's just like oh well, we would not have this great atlantis myth had it not been for Alexander the great these these things are defalsifiable they cannot be false <laughs> they cannot be falsified uh, and until they can be falsified um i'm all for them i Listen, I definitely subscribe more to the Von Daniken than the Graham Hancock uh, theory of, of the ancient world. I figure if, if you're going to believe in deities, I'd make a, I, I'll take aliens that, that, that resemble deities any time over that, you know, or, or I'll take that it's, you know, nothing. It's just this chance cosmic, you know, evolution type thing, one or the other. But I, the aliens are much more fun. And I, and I'm totally going to be a collaborator. So I want, I want oh, let the record reflect. I will absolutely be a collaborator. Oh man, oh man, we might be, we might be on the other side of that uh, alien conflict. But I don't know. We'll, yeah, we'll see what the aliens are like. I would advise against that. Resistance is futile. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so your impressions of mine, and who do you think? Uh, well, I I think Alexander the Great is a, is a fine uh, choice to answer that question. I think. I would agree with you that Alexander has a larger impact on the shape of world history than, uh, than Da Vinci or definitely Ben Franklin. Um, you know, Da Vinci is 
fascinating artist who I I'm, I actually think Da Vinci is awesome. Mm -hmm. And sure, he's had all sorts of influence on the worlds of art and the worlds of invention. But like to say he's the most influential human being ever is bananas. I don't think that even comes close. Say and Ben Franklin, it's like yeah, I think he's an important person in the history of the United States uh, and, and like an important figure in his era uh, and, and, and an interesting inventor. Uh, but again, the most important person ever, Ben Franklin, are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> no way. So I thought about this. You, you, you primed me with this question before I came yes. on. I'm going to give you an answer that is kind of in the line of Alexander. Sure. I say that the most important individual person who has ever lived is Constantine the Great. Okay. Constantine the First, the Roman Emperor, and here's why. So, Constantine famously was the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity. <clears throat> he reunited the Roman Empire under one emperor. Uh, there had been this massive civil war right before he became the emperor. Uh, an earlier emperor had tried this system where there were going to be four Roman emperors. They all just ended up fighting each other. Constantine comes, up, comes out on top. Uh, now, his, just a new guy being Roman emperor, I don't think that necessarily makes you the most consequential person ever. Sure. However, he very famously embraces Christianity. Now, there's a historical myth associated with it, and it's actually the emblem of my podcast. So the, the logo for my podcast is this painting done by Raphael of Constantine looking up in the sky. And in the original painting, there's the cross illuminated in the sky. I just put a little UFO there. Mm -hmm. Photoshopping in my, yes. in my episode. A UFO, that's right. Yeah. The truth right. revealed. Breaking news here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you caught me. I know. Um, uh, but uh, this whole thing was a trap. You're the one from Canada, but I'm the one that laid the beaver trap. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the legend goes that on the eve of this very consequential battle during these civil wars. Constantine has a dream where Jesus comes to him and says, shows him the cross and says, in this sign conquer. And then the next day he wakes up and he sees a vision in the sky. And he's like, oh my God, it's my dream is true. And so he gets all of his soldiers to paint the emblem on their cross. And then they go and they win this, this epic battle. And it's, you know, key on his, towards his path to becoming the sole emperor of the Roman empire. Now, we know now that this story is a total historical myth. Uh, it probably never happened. The vision in the sky may have happened, but at the time, he didn't say that it was the cross or that it was Jesus. Uh, he actually, it, it, it went on, on the triumphal arc of Constantine, which you can still see today in Rome, it's one of the arcs that has um, survived the ages. You can still see it in person. And it, it has all these carvings depicting this battle. It's called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And on it, they have an image of him on his horse looking up and seeing this image in the sky. But it just looks like a comet coursing through the sky. Many people think that it may have been just like a, a, a big comet that they saw. Or? Or aliens, right. yes, of course. Uh, and, uh, but he associated it with being a sign from another god that he was worshipping at the time, uh, uh, who was the was, was the sun god? 
a um, uh, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the name of the particular sun god that Mithras? they were worshiping. Was that? Was it Mithras? No, no. Uh, it was um, oh, uh, oh, Sol Invictus. That's oh, it. Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. Sure. Um, and it was sort of, but anyway, so it was this sort of deity that was actually very popular in the Roman military at the time because the sun cannot be conquered. Nor can I. Um, Except half the so day. Anyway, so that was sort of his patron deity. Um, and so the story about him like associating this vision with Christianity, probably not true. The story about him getting the soldiers to paint the cross on the shields, definitely not true. When he did eventually end up embracing Christianity, uh, he never actually used the cross as a symbol. He used all these other early Christian symbols. So a lot of that story is completely made up. The part that isn't made up, though, is that he personally embraces Christianity. Now, this is something that he does over the course of his life, but he issues something called the Edict of Milan, which makes Christianity no longer an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. He basically issues this huge like writ of tolerance. Basically, Christianity will be allowed to be recognized as a legit religion in the Roman Empire. And this was an essential step to eventually it becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. He then calls the Council of Nicaea, which brings together all of these Christian leaders, where they hammer out basically the key tenets of what the Christian faith is going to be. They settle on the canonical Bible. They, uh, they hammer out what's known as the Nicene Creed. Here are the key tenets of Christian theology. Um, they basically create what would then be the basis for the institutional religion of Christianity from that day forward. Um, and then uh, he has, Constantine also has a deathbed conversion, so he actually becomes the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Now, in his lifetime, again, a lot of people have confused this and said, like, he converted the empire to Christianity. That's partially true, but not totally true. He, he promoted Christianity. He made it clear that he favored Christianity. He started using Christian symbols, uh, associated them with his reign later on, and said people should convert. People should do this. And, I, and he himself personally started patronizing churches, and then he has a big deathbed conversion. He becomes a Christian. Couple emperors down the line, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. Without that, without him embracing that religion, you know, there's a strong chance that Christianity would have always just remained a fringe religion. It would have always sort of remained sort of like a, uh, you know, a sect or one of the many sort of messianic cults that were popular at the time that died out. The fact that the emperor embraced it basically ensured that Christianity was going to be the religion of Europe, um, the religion of good chunks of, you know, the Middle East uh, until, you know, the rise of Islam. And, uh, and then eventually when Europeans went out and went to colonizing, became, you know, the religion, now the, the most subscribed to religion in the world. To this very day, Christianity is still the most subscribed to religion anywhere in the world. And so that one guy, he made a just spectacular difference. So that I think that on its own qualifies you as perhaps 
the most important person that ever lived. No matter what your feelings are about Christianity, whether you are a believer or you're a strict atheist, you love it, you hate it, you can't deny that it has been consequential right. in, in human history. The other thing he does is he moves the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople. Um, now, again, if that was the only thing he did, I don't think that would make him the most important person, but that move was like hugely consequential. Constantinople becomes like the new hub of world culture. It becomes the largest city or one of the largest cities in the world. Um, you know, in that period, you know, there's Constantinople, there's a few Chinese cities, a few Indian cities, but it is one of the most important parts of the world. It becomes this bridge between East and West, even as the Western Empire falls apart, gets divided up, it's conquered by various powers. The Eastern Empire soldiers on as the Byzantine Empire well into the 1400s, um, and that city um, continues to just be this incredibly significant place, even into the Ottoman era. Heck, you could even argue that you know World War One, you know, one of the key objectives of the Russians in World War One was to capture Constantinople and you know get control of the of the Bosphorus Strait and the Dardanelles. So that you know by by taking what was essentially like a fishing village before then, um, you know, the town of Byzantium, uh, would and turning it into this like this uh, the, this massive cosmopolitan city the most important city in the world, arguably, for the next thousand years, um, that is also an incredibly significant thing. So because of those two things, I am saying Constantine the Great, Roman Emperor. Okay, that, that, that's a good one. That's very compelling. That's what we would expect from the host of our fake history. You know, and, and you know, it, it gets tough because, you know, you've got but for causation and, you know, uh, sure. if, if it wasn't for the Egyptians, there wouldn't be this. Or if it wasn't for the, the Persians, you, you the, the Greeks would have never had to unite and this, that, and the other. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, and obviously the, the, the cons were very significant, but I don't know that they influenced the whole world. They sort of stopped. They, they're probably the most significant in, in Asia and certainly the northern and the, the steppe lands, but they sort of stopped. Uh, right around the Caspian. So I don't know. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that yours is a very compelling case. I, uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced over mine, but that's all right. It does, it's not an advocacy piece. It just <laughs> that's okay. It's that's opinion. Okay. Just something to chew on, man. And then really, and obviously in this one, there really is no uh, one right answer, right? Well, I mean, there is. It's obviously Tothermes, the, the Atlantean. But uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we, the, the, I mean that that's that's for sure. Or, or, who, or whoever the the alien creature was that inspired Thoth. Well, I, I mean, Osiris just, is is, is Thoth. So I mean, you know, and Osiris from Orion. I mean, it's yes. it's very obvious. Come on. Um, but as I <laughs> no, this is this is tons of fun. You're a great sport. You're a fount of information. Um, I, you know, I prepped you uh, or I gave you lead time on some of these things, but not all of these things. Uh, and I appreciate you making time for my little show. Tell the folks where they can find you. Tell them about your Patreon, whatever, whatever it is that you want to promote. Plug away. It's, this is a free promotion zone. Thanks. Uh, yeah, you can find Our Fake History on every podcast app, wherever you get your podcasts, just search for Our Fake History. 
Uh, you can go to the you can go to the website. Sorry, at ourfakehistory.com. Uh, the, all the archive is there. You can go back and look at all the episode art. We've got this great artist that does uh, you know comic book style episode art for each of my episodes. So the the, the website's kind of cool to go through if you're interested in stuff like that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at our fake history. You can find me on Instagram at our fake history. Uh, I'm I'm basically everywhere there is our fake history. It's me. I tried to lock that down pretty early on. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I know if you no, go and listen to the show, if you liked what I was on about here, uh, listen to the show. And if, if you dig it and only if you dig it, then think about supporting on Patreon, but give it a try first. You know, that's what I'd say. I, I, I would never ask anyone to be like, yeah, just give me some money before you listen. You know, well, a 24 did when I went to see the green Knight, but that's a different gripe of mine. Uh, uh oh, really? Yeah. I hated it, but okay. That's it. No, no. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I'm a patron uh, of his show, so uh, you know you can join the cool kids uh, because no, no one's cooler than me. Everyone knows that. No, it's very appreciated. And, uh, no, thanks again. And this has been a lot of fun, Jeff. Thank you. Great. Hey, listen, you're welcome back anytime if you ever want to talk about things that are a, a little bit too far for your show, um, but uh, you know, but you still want to you still want to vent them out somewhere into the universe. That is what the Garden of Doom is for. But I appreciate your time. You've been a great sport. And folks, check out his show. And if you are able and inclined, certainly support his project. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's worthwhile. And if you don't want to invest 30 hours in the topic from Dan Carlin, um, Sebastian will usually do them in an hour, an hour and a half, or sometimes he'll be, do multi-part episodes. But still, they're like an hour, hour and a half. And, and, yeah. and broken up over a week, not six hours dropped at once. Not, not to disparage Dan Carlin. That may work for you. See, with my OCD... He's going to come for you. Listen, if I get someone that important coming for me, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> I to, with my kind of OCD, I, I can't leave something unfinished. So the thought of having a, like a partly finished podcast there really bothers me sitting there. Mm. That is not a normal trait. I am aware of that. Uh, but I cannot overcome it. So... And for whatever reason, I can live with it with audiobooks, but I can't with a podcast. Do not ask me to explain it. I cannot. Um, I'm aware of that, that, that dichotomy as well. So, but enough about me. We, we already established that you agree with aliens and your show art covers it. So uh, it establishes it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So anyway, thank you again so much. It was a pleasure having you. Good luck in your endeavors. And let's get, let's get one of your famous trademark hellos. Yeah, I always said, hello, and welcome to Our Fake History. But then we always end it with, okay, that's all for this week. I cannot approve upon that. I don't have any taglines for this. So, everyone, you're going to get, okay, that's all we have <laughs> for this week. Come back next week into the Garden of Doom for more fun and adventure. Thanks so much, Upon the stairs, we spoke of what and when. Although I wasn't there, he said I was his friend, which gave us some surprise. I spoke into his eyes. I thought you died alone, a long, long time ago. Oh
shook his hand and made my way back home. I searched for home and land. For years and years I roamed. I gazed a gazeless stare at all the millions here. We must have died alone. Time to go. Who knows? 